Thank you, Sam. Hey, everybody. Thank you. Um, yeah, I grew up with this as well. I was maybe, maybe I was, I'm a little bit old for the Left Behind books. I think they came out a little bit late for me, but um, my parents uh, were big fans of a guy called Barry Smith. Yeah, oh yes, a few, few murmurs in the room. Uh, he was a big time evangelist uh, in New Zealand, and I'm sure he travelled internationally as well. Um, and my parents, when they had, because they were hippies who had converted to Christianity in the 70s um, and been shown thief in the night as well. Um, so we were, everybody was sort of both terrified of being somehow left out of the situation, uh, but also looking all around all the time for who it was going to be. And so as a little kid, I was kind of brought up in that context. And so I was always trying to predict when I thought Jesus was coming back and, 1987, that's what I said when I was a little kid. <laughs> I was like, I think it's 1987, Mum. Don't ask me how I arrived at that, but it was just intuition. That was incorrect. <laughs> Henry Kissinger was a big uh, antichrist figure in the 80s, who I think was a Secretary of State in the US, wasn't he? Um, he's still al- yeah, he's, yeah, he is still alive. He's, he's a, still writing? Or maybe he's still got he's still got a shot. He's in his nineties. Maybe he's uh, there's still hope for Henry Kissinger and his Antichrist aspirations. Um, all right. So we're gonna th- we're gonna we are gonna talk a bit about this tonight. My hope is to do a couple of things. One is to um, to unpack some of why Christians have viewed some of the scriptural texts in that way, but also to say. What else might be going on here that we could pay attention to that might be, um, I'm going to suggest a more helpful way of reading some of those texts. It gives us more of an insight into what's going on and challenges us about how we actually live uh, our lives in the present. So that's what we're going to try and do. Is that all right? Yeah. Um, we are in a series, as uh, has been mentioned, uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at heaven and a theology of heaven, um, and again about how a lot of the language in Scripture is is not about uh, escaping this world to get somewhere else, but about the transformation of this world uh, and the renewal of all things that God is wanting uh, to uh, usher in in the world and that we get to participate in. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we we talked about hell. Always a just a, a fun time having that conversation. Um, but again, we looked at some of the language that was being used. I'd encourage you, if you're interested in that, to go back. There's a blog that's uh, on the Edge Kingsland page. Um, easily, I would say, the most read Edge Kingsland blog of all time. Because <laughs> um, you can tell the little trackers of the counters of who reads them, which is quite funny. Interesting. It's obviously a hot topic. Do you see what? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so... If you want to know what we talked about there, I'd encourage you to, to go back and read that, and the podcast will be coming out this week. Um, the Again, the emphasis there is, is a lot on uh, how we live in the present and this kind of contrast that is drawn in the New Testament often between this kind of tale of two kingdoms. Which kingdom do we want to participate in? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of, uh, in two of the words that are used, Hades and Gehenna. Um, 
So I'd encourage you to catch up on that if you weren't here. Tonight, though, naming the Antichrist, so by the end you'll all know who in the room it is. Um, as we've already alluded to, um, this is probably that when, whenever anyone mentions uh, the words end times, um, the book of Revelation, the Antichrist, the beast, the mark of the beast, all sorts of ideas come flooding into people's heads, right? Uh, who was introduced really to some version of maybe a left behind or a thief in the night or, a, or that kind of theology? Who was introduced to that at some point in their, in their faith journey? Oh, quite a few of us in the room. Cool. Um, it's, um, it's an interesting... Kirk Cameron, Christian actor, eh? Wonderful. Clint's favourite. Clint loves a bit of the Kirk. Um, what I want to talk about, I guess, is where some of this way of reading Scripture has emerged because it has only really become popular in the last 120 years, really, of reading the Scriptures in this particular kind of way. Um, so let's, let's just unpack that a little bit before I offer an alternative way to read what's going on. Is that cool? Yeah, all right. You want me to read a chapter of Revelation? Oh, I've left behind. No. It's <laughs> enough people have been traumatised by these things. So, in the 19th century, which is the 1800s, yeah, uh, there was a, a gentleman by the name of John Nelson Darby. And he is one of the key figures at this time in reading some of these texts and scripture in a particular kind of way. Um, and his views became uh, popular with some of the revivalists who were going around preaching the gospel at that time. And because a bit of a good dose of paranoia is excellent for an evangelistic meeting, because if you can get people terrified, you can then get them saved. It's a wonderful strategy. Um, and, and so his ideas kind of took off, and then they were put into something called the Schofield Reference Bible, which was a Bible that had a whole lot of uh, stuff that went with it that was kind of commentary on it, that was interpreting the Bible in all sorts of different ways. Uh, it's often called dispensationalism. Um, and uh, I guess the modern version of that is stuff like Left Behind. And so these... Um, the guts of this kind of way of looking at the Bible, it tends to look at the whole thing and, and go through and pick out all sorts of different passages, a lot of passages from the book of Daniel and from the book of Revelation, and then interspersed with bits and pieces from the Gospels and from Thessalonians and from other places and from the Johannine epistles, sort of all kind of combined together into an, into an amazing formula of working out exactly what was going on in the world. So... Um, this whole approach is based on a few assumptions. Um, one is that prophecy is always about the future. So from this perspective, whenever we hear the idea of prophecy, what we are obviously thinking about is someone predicting what will happen in the future somewhere. So that's kind of assumption number one. Uh, two, apocalyptic texts. So in particular, uh, apocalyptic texts are things like the second half of the book of Daniel. Has anyone ever read the book of Daniel? The first half is kind of story, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the, the Jewish people have been put into exile in Babylon and so on. The second half 
moves into what we call apocalyptic text, which is all sorts of imagery about one like a son of man who appeared, and then an angel who came from here, and then this person whose feet were like gold, and then something, you know, it's this kind of uh, fantastical, visionary, prophetic offering. So the second half of the book of Daniel uh, is like that. Uh, and in the book of Daniel, there's this reference to Israel being restored in 70 weeks of years. And obviously a week is how many days? Seven days. So seven, correct, yes, top marks, straight to the top of class, Andrew. So 70 weeks of years, a week of year, week of years is obviously seven years. So 70 weeks of years is 70 times seven years. And then if you trace that through, through a bit of your old uh, calculations, if this is the way you think, this is what the text is supposed to be doing. What they do is they track that through and they say, okay, so God has made these promises to Israel that after these 70 weeks of years, uh, finally things will be put right. And then they, so they try and track that through and end up with a point where then Jesus turns up. But the Jewish people do not recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so what the dispensationalists and what John Nelson Darby and others have said is that essentially God hit pause on the 70 weeks of years with seven years left. There's only one week of years left out of the 70 weeks of years uh, until God had done all things. But the Jewish people did not respond to Jesus as the Messiah. So God had to push pause on the 70 weeks of years. Does this make sense? No. <laughs> Um, and so what that means is, uh, essentially, God hits pause and goes, okay, we're gonna, there's seven years to go, but we're just going to hit pause on that, uh, and then uh, we'll kickstart that seven years again at some point in the future, and things will finish off. Got me? All right. So essentially what they would say is the church is kind of an in-between age, that uh, sometimes they talk about it as a parenthetical age, which just means it's in brackets because it's not really even supposed to be here. Um, we were just kind of inserted into the story because the Jewish people didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. We're kind of holding the message until such time, because Jerusalem ends up getting destroyed, as the Jewish people return to Israel, and then eventually they'll rebuild the temple. And then uh, when that happens, the, seven year, the last seven years will kick in. And then all things will wrap up. Good? Okay. Now, a couple of things about <laughs> that you might be thinking, um, I don't know that this is particularly relevant to my life. <laughs> Correct. Although, we, uh, <laughs> growing up, it did make me do a lot of uh, guessing about how all this was going to play out. Because then the church is in the business of trying to read the signs of the times. Is the seven years about to start? Is the seven years about to start? I think it is. I think it is. Uh, I've got a little book at home, just not because I love it, but because, well, I love it, but for different reasons than for it being great. Um, but it does all of these amazing calculations based on the biblical text. And it says, look, we know no one can know the day or the hour when Jesus returns, but we can narrow it down. And what we can say is definitely, based on this analysis, Jesus must return somewhere between 1914 and 1929. It's got to happen in that window somewhere. Um, and what you see over the course of the last 120 years is people redoing that calculation kind of over and over again. Oh, hang on, we got the, uh, yeah, we got the numbers wrong on this or that. Or they're trying to figure out how it all works. Uh, there are some quite famous figures. Harold Camping in the US a few years, uh, maybe three or four years ago, was it? 
and he had people putting up billboards all around. That he'd figured out what the date was going to be, and it was all, it was all amazing. Yeah, change your life. Uh, so, anyway, I'm not going to spend too much longer on this because I actually want to offer you a uh, what I think is a different way of looking at this. Um, but essentially, we're in this. I do want to make a point because I think it is. Uh, it does have an impact actually on what's happening in the world right now, but not maybe in the way that we would have thought. So the idea is we're in this kind of in-between age, but then at some point Jesus will rapture the believers. So we'll go, which is we're going to talk about the rapture in two weeks' time uh, and kind of flip it around and look at it from a different angle. Um, essentially, though, in this framework, everybody gets sucked up naked into, into the heavens with Jesus. Um, all the believers do. Uh, the Jewish state will have made some kind of deal with the, with the Antichrist, which we're going to talk about a bit today, uh, which they think is going to be awesome, but it turns out that he double-crosses them and desecrates the temple and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the, the, the belief is that in that seven-year period uh, when the Antichrist is in charge of the world and people will be forced to take the mark of the beast, um, Israel will eventually return to God by trusting in Jesus as their Messiah. It will all culminate in a final battle at the end of the seven years, Armageddon. Not just a movie about a coming uh, asteroid. Bruce Willis, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Bruce. Um, oh, that song, yes. Thank you, Sam. Good. A bit of, uh, what are they called? Aerosmith, yes. Um, Armageddon is this final battle when the, uh, when, sort of essentially the, the good people who have now recognised Jesus as the Messiah gather and they try to fight the armies of the Antichrist who come in to destroy them. Jerusalem's going to get destroyed and a few other things, but then Jesus is going to turn up, uh, lead the people of God to victory uh, and the Antichrist will be destroyed and Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Sound good? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, Jesus is good at those. Yeah. Um, now, interestingly, one of the things that happened here is that the way in which the Antichrist will take over the world is obviously by deceiving the church, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, and one of the things when I was growing up was that God was going... Oh, sorry, not God, the Antichrist. Get those mixed up. That's bad, isn't it? Uh, the, the Antichrist will deceive uh, a bunch of the church. And, um, and when I was young, it was the Catholic church. They were the ones who were being deceived. And so the Pope who had compromised and uh, as my mum told me, because there's, there's one of the images in the book of Revelation is, it combines a couple of metaphors together. One is Babylon, who's symbolic of kind of an oppressive empire and one is uh, a, a prostitute. Uh, and so as my mum told me when I was growing up that the Roman Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon. That's <laughs> yep. So uh, that's why I um, drink. So, <laughs> interestingly, um, there's also this thing called the World Council of Churches, where churches try and meet together and get along with each other. And so they were the big enemy as well, because they were obviously an attempt to join all of the uh, churches and religions in the world into one big global religion. Uh, the European Union was also part of this attempt to join everybody together into one big thing, uh, and so is the United Nations, and so on. Um, so ironically, you've got all of these Christians opposing any attempt for people to get along with each other. 
um, any attempt for kind of churches to talk to one another about what they might agree on, uh, or for religions to get together and actually have some kind of constructive interfaith dialogue. Um, so Christians who hold to this perspective see all of those things as a sure sign that the work of the devil has come among us. Which kind of goes against Jesus' whole prayer. I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. What did he know? Uh, it is ironic. Okay, so um, a couple of things to say about that. One is this has a real impact currently on what is going on in the world. Because in particular in the US, there are a large number of Christians who hold to this particular framework. And they see America as holding a unique and particular role in the end times to help usher in the return of Christ. And so things like the return of the US Embassy to Jerusalem, just about a month ago, was it? Is seen by conservative dispensational evangelicals in the US as a sign that US is on the side of Israel in beginning the restoration process at Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the temple, restart sacrificing animals there, um, and ultimately that will usher in the return of Christ. So bad... Oh, we did say we were going to be up in... Uh, this kind of theology <laughs> uh, actually can shape and has shaped uh, world politics and uh, people and the way they treat one another as nations. Uh, and so America sees, has interpreted China and Russia as being two of the nations that are written about in some of these texts. And so that sets up a certain adversarial relationship. Because you can't ever really get along if the prophets have already foretold that they will be your enemies in the Armageddon battle. Right? So it, it puts a bit of a downer on reconciliation talks. Okay. So all of that to say, um, you might have kind of left behind some of this theology, some of you, see what I did there? Um, but it has not left the world behind, and it continues to shape uh, the activity of people in the world on some pretty major scales. And so I think it's really important that Christians think about this in helpful ways. Yeah? You still with me? Okay, cool. Oh, hey, Grant. Oh, hi there. <laughs> is that the whole reason that Israel was, re, you know, like after the Second World War, mm -hmm. they, the Zionists, like, wanted to took over, created, the, created Israel? So, in the, so, yeah, the, the Israel coming back together in the 19, after the Second World War, I guess, was triggered by a few things, right? One is obviously the horrendous, um, suffering that Jewish people experienced uh, through the Holocaust. Uh, and then also the sense that God, that was their promised land, that that was their land. And so they began to return. Um, before it was formalized as a nation, just Jewish people started returning back to Palestine as it was uh, then from all over the world. But certainly you could say that one of the influences on why it was that parts of the West decided that that was a good idea to reform the nation of Israel and to essentially kick the Palestines out of a land they'd been living in for a long time. It was shaped by some of this theology, yeah. Not only this, but, but one, of, one of the informing reasons, yeah. Yeah, so we go pretty quickly from 
uh, people reading their Bibles in a certain way to international politics, <laughs> uh, which is pretty fascinating, actually. Um, a couple of things we could perhaps say about why this view is appealing. One is, I think, it really emerged at a time when the influence of the church had, was changing in society. So the church had gone from being right at the centre to starting to lose its power and influence in Western society. And so an interpretation of Scripture that explained that by saying this is all a part of things going downhill before the, return of the, anti- before the coming of the Antichrist, but Jesus is going to come and rescue us, kind of makes sense of that story for them. Um, so I, I think there's, a, and I think that's really still playing out, and maybe in particular in the US, that's why it's so popular there because they've probably held on to more influence in American society longer than parts of Europe and New Zealand and Australia, so on. So um, people still talk about Christianity and God in the public space in America much more commonly than they might here, for example. Uh, but they are, they see this as some kind of battle with, that they are losing, but. This framework helps to make sense of that. Uh, this is all part of God's plan. Um, it's also a, it's helping people cope with the negative turn, I think, world war. Uh, this is like a different response than postmodernism. Postmodernity is one response to uh, the threat of nuclear warfare or in the actuality of nuclear war in the, at the end of World War II. Um, which is to say we thought science was going to take us to glorious places, but it took us to new ways to kill each other in huge numbers. So post-modernity is one way to critique that journey. And another way is to say, well, this is another sign that things are getting bad um, because Jesus is coming soon. And so this kind of urgent message that Jesus is about to return kind of sits within certain sectors of the church. Probably not the Roman Catholic Church so much, but they are... They were trying to, you know, obviously they were baddies. That's what I'm saying. Now, should I cut that out of the podcast? Probably. Um, the other thing that this view does is make you feel a bit special because you've got this amazing insight into what's really going on in the world. Uh, and I think that's a kind of, of a powerful feeling. You can say, oh, yeah, well, all of that is happening, but I know what's really going on. Uh, and that's that's an exciting and powerful feeling, I think, and for people for whom maybe they feel like they've lost a little bit of power. Anyway, that's one way of looking at some of these texts. And I want to offer a, another way. All right? Okay, then. One of the things we do when we read Scripture is to ask ourselves, who was this written to? Why was it written? And how would they have read it and heard it when it was given to them? Because all of the texts we have in the Bible were written to communities, were written to people. Um, And one of the things that immediately jumps out at us for something like the book of Revelation, which is written to a group of churches in a particular context, which we'll explore shortly, It doesn't make a lot of sense just right from the start to say, here's a letter I've written you especially just to you churches who are going through a bunch of stuff and it's about all sorts of things that are going to happen in thousands of years from now and have no impact on your lives. Um, 
that doesn't seem like a particularly helpful kind of letter to write <laughs> um, to a church, unless they just wanted to be the custodians of these secrets of the age, I suppose you could say that. But that's one of the things. The other thing is to ask, what is the genre of text that we are uh, working with here? And Sam mentioned this term, apocalyptic. So I want to talk about this. Apocalyptic texts emerge as resistance literature in the Jewish story. So we mentioned the second half of the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Revelation is like this. And there are also little glimpses of, of apocalyptic literature in some of the prophets and in some of the gospels as well. Uh, you'll recognize the imagery the more you kind of read it. So that it might have things like uh, the moon will go red. The stars will fall from the sky. Um, the old blood moon from the other, when was that, two mornings ago? Oh yeah, that, that got the people going. Tell you what, there's a few, uh, few prophecies getting fired out about uh, the, the blood going red in the sky, uh, especially because I think they're supposed to be like this four over a short period of time, symbolising the... And it was only a few weeks ago the embassy went back to Jerusalem. These things tend to be very American-centric, if you've, if you've noticed. But, um, so... That kind of language, this fantastical imagery, you might have beasts. You've got one like a son of man who out of whose hand comes swords and eyes are like a blazing fire and feet are glowing like this and uh, horses come from this way and beasts come from that way and uh, all sorts of amazing imagery that is used in these texts. Um, and apocalyptic literature emerges in, uh, in the Jewish story a few hundred years before Jesus. So, um, the nation of Israel, chosen people of God, uh, as they, you know, that's their story, um, uh, overwhelmed by Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. And um, they go into exile, and then, and a number of them are taken to Babylon, people like Daniel and others. Now, interestingly, most scholars will tell you that the book of Daniel is not written at this time. The book of Daniel is written a couple of hundred years later when a similar kind of experience is underway for the Jewish people. Uh, so if you know your history, and we might have mentioned this before at some point, uh, Alexander the Great, you all remember that guy? I mean, not personally, but you know. Uh, if you know any of your history, a few hundred years before Christ, Alexander the Great, comes through the, that region of the world and establishes this large Greek empire. He dies in his 30s, about 33. Um, and his empire splits into four. And the land of Israel or Palestine, that, that, whole little, that little strip there, is a contentious, I mean back then, obviously not now, contentious uh, sliver of land between two of these um, Greek empires left over from the Alexander, Alexandrian thing. And that kind of goes okay for quite a while. But then uh, the ruler of one of those empires by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV uh, decides he wants to impose himself upon the Jewish people who are living in this region. They'd kind of been left to their own devices. They had to pay lots of taxes and all of that kind of stuff. But they were allowed to practice their own religion and have their own temple and so on. Um, but Antiochus Epiphanes wants to reassert dominance over these people. They have to worship Zeus and the gods of 
the Greeks and so on, and so they go to the temple where the Jewish people obviously have all of their rituals and want to set up a statue of Zeus in there for them to bow down to and worship to and to force Jewish priests to make sacrifices. In the end, a whole, a whole lot of uh, war breaks out, the Maccabean Revolution, all sorts of stuff, but Antiochus Epiphanes is a, is a violent, oppressive, um, egomaniac ruler. And, um, and the book of Daniel emerges amongst the people at this time telling them about another story of people who were under a violent, oppressive ruler when the Jewish people were suffering. Uh, and especially there's a pocket. Now, the first part is obviously about Babylon, so that's okay. You wouldn't get in trouble if you were found reading that uh, or reading that out to a group. Uh, the second part, though, the book of Daniel goes on to talk about the empires to follow at the time of Daniel, which leads us up to Antiochus Epiphanes. And so suddenly all of this apocalyptic imagery begins to be used uh, in the second half of the book of Daniel, using all of this imagery to essentially talk about how even though there is the, there's this stuff going on and it looks like we are losing the battle, uh, one like a son of man is going to come and rescue us and, and restore us. Yeah? So it's, it's, it's kind of like is, is resistance literature in that sense. They use language that other people wouldn't understand, symbols that make sense, to a Jewish people who are under severe pressure and violence um, that are in tune with the words of the prophets and of those who have gone before but use all of that imagery in, in beautifully amazing and spectacular ways. You with me? Okay. Secondly, I want to say that the role of a prophet um, is to, rather than is to always predict the future, a lot more about it's a lot more about interpreting the present and offering us an alternative narrative. So what the prophets will often do is say, here's the story you are being thrust, that is being thrust upon you by the dominant uh, empire, culture, whatever it might be, but here's an alternative imagining. Here's an alternative view of reality. Here's what else might be going on here. Uh, and offering what Walter Brueggemann calls a prophetic imagination. Um, and often these apocalyptic prophetic texts emerge when there's real tension because the people of God are kind of uh, are trying to make sense of their suffering and the oppression that they're experiencing and the tension that they're in. Um, which brings us to the book of Revelation. So I want to summarise a little bit of what's going on in that and then we'll have a, a little break before we come back and figure out who the beast and the Antichrist is. Is that all right? You okay? Everybody pumped up? Yeah, super... Pumped up with that mulled wine. Um, the book of Revelation is written in the later part of the first century. And the Caesar at that time is Caesar Domitian. Um, after the time of Jesus, which is in the first half of the first century there, um, you can even see at the time of Jesus, they're wanting to start a revolution, some of them, right? They want Jesus to lead them in a, in a military violent revolution against Rome. He refuses and he says, no, instead I'm going to show you a different way, which is to love your enemies, to lay your life down and, and so on. Um, but many Jewish people after Jesus still continue on this uh, path of wanting violent revolution. Um, and so, uh, so there's a couple of things that really gets the Roman Empire upset. Um, one is Christians going around saying Jesus is Lord, 
instead of Caesar, um, because Caesar's supposed to be Lord and Saviour. And the other is Jews who keep trying to fight back and cause unrest against the Roman Empire. In AD 70, so Nero is, is a little bit before this. If you've ever heard of Nero, not a nice guy. Uh, the Caesars had different responses to the idea of being called Lord and Saviour and being seen as divine. Some of them didn't rate it so much and some of them loved it. Nero was a big lover of being called a god. Um, and he also hated Christians because they refused to um, worship him. So he liked to kill Christians. In the end, um, his empire kind of falls apart a bit and he ends up taking his own life. Uh, and, then a, and there's all sorts of civil war essentially breaking out in the Roman Empire at this time. And so in AD 66, Jerusalem ends up in revolt and Jewish rebels take back Jerusalem from the Roman Empire. Um, and so shortly after this, Nero ends, ends his own life because he comes under a lot of political pressure. Uh, and then another Caesar uh, comes in. i trying to remember his name. There's a few Caesars through here. Um, uh, it's a... Hmm? Julius? No, it's um, something Aspian. Okay, I'm trying to... No, that's Caspian, that's from Narnia. That's the wrong one. Recalling the wrong file. Um, <laughs> anyway, that's it's not important for now. In AD 70, Jerusalem is destroyed, and that's when the state of Israel ceases to be as we know it until the 1940s. So Rome burns, um, burns Jerusalem. As we mentioned last time, a lot of the Jewish dead bodies are thrown into Gehenna, the word that Jesus uses for hell, into the valley of Hinnom. Um, we have a few Caesars through this time, and then in the late latter first century, Domitian is another Caesar who really, um, he really loves the, the divine label. I mean, I guess if it was available to you, it's a good business. Uh, and so he demanded to be called Lord and Saviour, and he wanted to execute those who would not worship both the Roman gods and him as one of the Roman gods because he saw himself as one of them. Um, so there was a coin that was quite familiar in the first century. It would have the Caesar's name on it and the title Lord and Saviour, and that's what you use to buy and sell in the markets. But most of the Caesars had let um, people like Jews and Christians and others use their own local currency. Um, but Domitian said, no, you must use my currency, Lord and Saviour, um, when you buy and sell and the markets, and if you're just if the if the mark of the beast with which you must buy and sell flashes through your mind, there you're on the right track. Uh, so Domitian would uh, have people arrest those who did not honour his divinity, and then they would be given a choice: either you can choose to offer. Uh, well, he he didn't go around arresting people. Obviously, he's the Caesar, but people are going around arresting atheists. Which, so a lot of Christians at this time were executed for being atheists, which I think is also an amazing ir irony. Because they were seen as atheists because they wouldn't worship the gods and they wouldn't worship Caesar. And they didn't have a temple and there's no god you could see. So obviously they didn't believe at all. So they were given the choice, will you worship Caesar and the Roman gods and will you, you had to offer an incense offering to Caesar Domitian uh, or face execution? So that's the kind of thing that's going on in the later first century when the book of Revelation is written. Does that make sense? Okay, a little bit of context, sometimes very helpful. Um, so John, who's the author of Revelation, um, 
Not the same John who's the John who wrote the Gospels and the letters. Just different. I know. It, yeah, really. Sorry, that's confusing too, isn't it? Get a different name. Clear it up. Crazy, we'll call him Crazy John. We'll call him Trippy on a trip, John. Um, John himself is in prison when he writes this particular book. So he's been imprisoned by the Domitian Empire, the Roman Empire at this time. So he writes this piece of prophetic resistance literature in jail on the island of Patmos. That's, this, is, this is an alternative way of looking at it that I'm offering you. And if you decide you want to stone me afterwards, that's cool. <clears throat> but I don't reckon you will. So essentially what you have throughout the whole book of Revelation um, is, is the swirling amount of imagery that's being used. It moves backwards and forwards in time. It, look, it, it repeats the story from lots of different angles. So it zooms in and then it zooms out and it uses this image and it uses that image. And it tells the story of um, Jesus and Herod trying to kill Jesus as a baby. Um, it calls on the old plagues of Egypt and uses those as metaphors for the way in which God might act to rescue people in the present. Uh, all of these images swirling around to talk about a couple of things. One is, how do we live as Christians in the face of this violent empire that wants to kill us? Or at the very least, um, suppress us and marginalise us or force us to buy into the system of the empire. Yeah? So that's a lot of what's actually going on in the book of Revelation. Rather than necessarily being a bunch of predictive stuff about some things that might happen thousands of years from that time. Uh, and so John's texts talk about things like this demand that, we, that, that you would worship the beast. And it talks about this sequence of beasts, which refer to the different Caesars who have been coming through in that, in that first century. Um, taking the mark of the beast, which is uh, this... Uh, command that you have to buy and sell with the Lord and Saviour currency of Domitian the Caesar. Uh, and so there's this whole story about the Roman Empire that's going on in the book of Revelation. And then there's this contrast with that, which is uh, the way of Jesus and the lamb that was slain. And so the primary metaphor for, for, for God actually in the book of Revelation is the lamb that was slain. So at one point you hear uh, there's a voice coming from the throne and John turns around to see who is it that's speaking from the throne. And when he turns around and looks upon the throne, there's a lamb that has been slain. And that's the voice that's speaking, which is Christ who gives up his life rather than taking up the power of empire. You with me? It's a bunch of just casual information for a Sunday evening. Um... So you see all sorts of things coming together. You see, you see words like Moses and Elijah and David, and you see uh, imagery of Sodom and Jezebel and Babylon, um, harlots and beasts and all sorts of things. But a lot of these are drawn from the history of Israel's story and then thrust together into this kind of swirling cacophony of imagery, uh, all talking about over and over again from lots of different angles what, what it is that's going on for these people in the first century. Um, cool. Yeah. What I'd like to do then in, uh, after we have a little break, because that's just, I wanted to just give you a bunch of, two, two ways of looking at the text. One is the dispensational left behind way, 
and the other is the way I've just described. Uh, and so I think it's a good chance for a breather. Uh, and then I want us to have some discussion and look in particular at two images. I want to talk about the beast and the Antichrist. Uh, what are those terms being used to talk about and what does that actually mean for us now? Is there any relevance of this for us in the present? Because if this is all about a first century story and Roman empires and all that kind of stuff, or if it's all about something way out in the future, then neither of those things necessarily come forward into us now. But what do these images uh, mean and what might they have to offer us in terms of a challenge in the way that we live in the world? Is that all right? Okay. Did I? Good. Good. Did I say two questions? Yeah, I did, eh? Um, oh, I think my two questions were, uh, what is going on with, in, uh, in the empire of Rome? And then what is the response of Christians to? I think that's what I meant by that. Sorry. But yes, thank you for the, the clarifying question. Any other questions at this point before we go to a quick break? Say it all again. <laughs> it's in the back of the Childish Gambino music video. Um, yes, Katharina. That's a good idea, isn't it? I'm sure there is. Um, yeah. If you do, if you do, um, if you go and look at, um, yeah, even even, and I don't use, I wouldn't to my students, I would never say quote Wikipedia in your essays because uh, sometimes it's a bit dubious. But uh, if you just want to get a sense of the Caesars and the order in which they come and the kind of historical events that happen in the first century and when Rome, uh, when Jerusalem is destroyed and all that kind of stuff, then you can you can track that through pretty easily uh, through something like Wikipedia in terms of giving you a general overview of what is actually unfolding at this time. Uh, and if you want to look up Domitian as a Caesar and see what the kinds of things that he did and so on. And then that gives you a sense for, okay, so this is the historical context into which this particular letter is written to these churches that are trying to negotiate how do we be a Christian community in the midst of that kind of world. Uh, and that's the big question for, for John, for the book of John. Um, yeah. So, uh, so John says, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Um, not by uh, either giving in to the empire or by trying to fight back in the ways of violence, but by following um, Jesus who gives up his life and love. All right? So it's like a lot of stuff to throw at you. I'm aware of that. My hope is in the second half, we kind of we land it, right? We ground it into our actual experience now. What does this mean for us? You all right? Cool. Short break. We'll be back shortly. Oh, that's a good combo. That's wonderful. God has a sense of humor, you see. He does. He does. This is going to be like really... All right, everyone. Uh, we'll get back into it and have some discussion. Um, 
So one of the things that happens when you start to read some of this, uh, the Scripture this way, well, this is what happened for me when I first read it. I had two responses to this kind of thing in me. One was, oh, <laughs> you're taking away all the excitement of my guesses about what's going to happen. Uh, and then the other response was, oh, this makes way more sense. Uh, that was that. They were the two responses that that I had. Hmm? No, I'm just telling you what my responses were. To it. I'm not projecting that onto you at all. Um, so we've got this 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 letter that is written to this group of churches in the latter part of the first century, uh, where John is using all of this amazing imagery uh, to describe the tension between uh, this Roman Empire and what it was demanding of its people who lived within its borders, and the response of Christians who were trying to stay faithful to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, which meant, and I think it's much more than, oh, I'm on the Jesus team, that's my God, so I, so I worship Jesus, don't make me say that I don't. Uh, it's about a whole way of life, which was I'm going to follow this Jesus way of being in the world and not give in to this empire way of being in the world. And... And what we see through this text then is that even for those who are being killed for their faith in this time, uh, they have uh, a God who also uh, enters into the story in Jesus and is killed for being faithful to God too. And, uh, and God vindicated Christ and God will vindicate them. And so for even those who are under severe suffering and, and threat of execution or the actual reality of execution, uh, what we find is that God is still going to, there is still hope in what God is doing in the world. So the idea of apocalypse is, is this kind of unveiling or revealing. And so what the prophet is doing is saying, here's the big story that's being thrust upon you and you're forced to see the way, world a certain way, but here's another way of seeing what's going on. God is actually still at work in this story. Uh, but the way of God is the way of Jesus. Um, and ultimately, love will be more powerful. Sacrificial love will be more powerful than all of the empire of Rome and its military forces and all of that stuff. That's, that's a big part of what's going on in the story. Um, so I want to talk about two terms, I think I said. Uh, the beast and the antichrist. Interestingly, the Antichrist isn't mentioned in the book of Revelation at all, uh, which is disappointing as well, right? <laughs> yeah, the term Antichrist doesn't appear in, in the whole book. What happens is uh, the other John, Johannine letters, 1 John and 2 John, uses the term Antichrist, and then people take that term and kind of do a line it up with Revelation and switch it across and then, and then try and say that what's going on over here is what John's talking about over here. So what I want to start with is not the Antichrist but the beast, which is kind of the language for what most people think of when they think of the Antichrist, and then look at what John actually means when he says the word Antichrist in his letters, the other John. Yeah, hey. Man. It's almost like this takes a while to figure out. Um, which maybe shouldn't be a surprise when we're reading texts that are 2,000 years old. It should take us a little while to figure out what's going on. If someone read your letters in 2,000 years' time uh, who spoke an entirely different language in an entirely different culture and context, it would probably take them a little while to figure out what was going on as well. 
Um, okay, so the image of the beast uh, I've already suggested is used to refer to uh, the Roman Empire and then there's like a horn on the beast which is often referring to the, the Caesar of the empire. Uh, and so the big deal in Revelation in, in many respects is about allegiance. It's about who do you serve? Who do you follow? Do you follow the, do you follow the way of Caesar and the empire or do you follow the way of Jesus? Um, and in some senses, that can sound a bit exclusionary, like you're trying to go around trying to figure out who's following the way of Jesus and who's not. Um, but it's being used by those who are being oppressed and killed by this empire. And so um, there's an empire, we could say, that is trying to do everything it can to make you fall in with the system, to play by the rules of power, oppression, violence, economic superiority, to follow their narrative. Are you going to fall in or are you going to follow a different path in this case, the, the way of the Lamb. Um, and what John argues is that the way of the Lamb is the way of life and true and lasting power comes from sacrificial love. And that that love is ultimately stronger than even death itself. Um, so this is not really about trying to hunt people down and get them to pray the prayer so that they get into the right team. Um, I mean, that's the way I approach primary school with my gospel tracts. I mean, I'd just been, you know, terrified with all the other stuff, so I don't want them all burning forever. Um, so I wanted to get them on the list. Scott, pray the prayer. Pray the prayer in this tract. This was me at seven, seven or eight, I think. Um, the next day, Scott, did you pray the prayer? Yes, I did pray the prayer. Why? Well, what? I heard you swear before. I don't think you did. Yeah, I was, I was really um, winning friends for Jesus. Powerfully effective. Uh, so question I've got for us now then. Oh man, I've done this again, eh? I do this every time, which is not use my slides correctly. I've said that. Here it is, the beast. Yeah, it's pretty good, eh? Because um, it has like different heads and they all represent different things and so on. Um, the question I'd like us to discuss briefly is if we think about this as not just the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire here and, and Domitian become symbolic of a certain way of acting in the world, then there does start to potentially come some relevance for us and the life we live in the present. So the question for us is, are there beasts of empire today and what story do they try and tell us about reality? All right, discuss. <laughs> All right. Um, I think that's probably that. That's a conversation that is ongoing, right? As it as it obviously is ongoing. That's a big question. Yes. Do you want more time? <laughs> no. Well, let, we'll hear a little bit of the kind of thoughts that are coming out of the room on on this. I'm aware that it's a it's a massive question, right? Because all sorts of things come into view when we ask a question like this. Uh, and in a sense, this is what apocalyptic texts are supposed to do for us, which is to say, life is kind of sailing along like this and we just take all sorts of things for granted. But what would if we were to sort of peel back a layer and look underneath that and say, what's really going on here and, and how do we respond to it? And that then becomes a big question to grapple with because you're thinking about all sorts of things, small and large. You're thinking about global and local. 
what are the kinds of things coming out in your conversations? Um, Well, there's lots and lots of things, as you said, but corporate giants was one of the the big beasts that I think of relative, relevant for uh, privileged Westerners, you know, that it sort of affects us. There are darker beasts, of course, there are many that we could name, but I feel like that's like a big one. The new empires I see as like the big corporations that sort of now rule the world and dictate a lot of um, international relations and politics. Yeah, and I guess the, the thing about those big global corporations is they don't just dictate national politics, but now they're at the point of dictating the way we actually function day to day in our lives in all sorts of ways. The kind of resources we use and where we get them from, all that kind of stuff. Cool. Anything else? D. Oh, um, I just like, I've, I've never like thought about it this way, but I found myself saying just a few moments ago that I can, I feel like the beast on a micro sense is something that I can even possibly identify within myself. And this, um, you know, this untamed, wily thing that uh, wants to, that, uh, that wants to align itself with empire, that wants to just consume, have no regard for other, uh, because it's easier. It's more comfortable. It's the way that you know the, the the system in which I current. Like for example, small small example, but plastic. <laughs> you know, like it just kind of buzzes me out that I can consume things with very little regard at times because it's easier to not think about it. Uh, it's easier to think to not think about what I'm doing and how I'm adding distraction. Uh, into the world. It's easier just to go along with whatever else is happening because it's too uncomfortable to try and change. Uh, yeah. It's just a thought. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Thanks. Anyone else? Yes. Oh, okay, all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about the Panama Papers, and the interesting thing about that is everyone kind of knows these big rorts go on, but I think in the last maybe 20 years we've learned more about the dark side of business and the fact is all these businesses are way bigger than the economies of entire countries and um, you know even the ones that we like um, in my neck of the woods Amazon, Google, Microsoft, um, Apple, um, all the things I like usually but all of these people are thoroughly bad citizens. Right, it's um Yes, it's an interesting, it's a very uncomfortable thing to reflect on, 
uh, I find myself sometimes, it, it just comes down, to, I'm standing in front of bananas, right? And I have my, my fair trade bananas and then the other bananas. And I've read a bit about bananas and I know that the bananas that are not fair trade, the conditions are, uh, often it's, it's actually slavery. Uh, it's also just horrendous conditions that lead to these lovely bananas that sit in my fruit bowl and I slice onto my cereal, you know. Uh, and so I always buy fair trade bananas. But then sometimes you go and the fair trade bananas are all green. And I want fresh bananas on my cereal. And so now I'm standing in front of them like that. And so the label I've now given to the other bananas is slavery bananas. This is what I tell myself to try and remind myself what the cost of participating in this is for people, right? So I'm like, okay, now I'm, these are too green, I can't have them. Or maybe there are no fair trade bananas. Will I have no bananas or will I have slavery bananas? And when I label it that way, it confronts me with the reality of it and then I can no longer eat the slavery bananas. Um, that's like my little way of trying to recognise the fact that what is, seems like some little minor just convenience issue for me has all sorts of um, spiralling out issues for people in other parts of the world that are suffering deeply because for my convenience, you know, which is a confronting idea and it gets very uncomfortable. And so we kind of think about that for a bit and then we're like, Ooh, um, sing us another song uh, about how great the Lord is and we'll be on our way. Um, but there's something about this kind of text that asks us to sit in that place of being uncomfortable long enough to wrestle with it genuinely. Yes. But is it not already evil that we have to pay for our social conscience that it's not just the bananas, it's the chocolate, it's the milk, it's the organic vegetables, it's not wanting to have the sugar and the MSG and the food, we actually have to pay extra. And you know, not everyone can afford it. That's the truth as well, you know. So it's, a, so it's a massive system, right? Because we've essentially then created an entire system where a bunch of people can't afford to, to choose the right or the more ethical choice because of the system that they then live in. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's almost like you can't really buy and sell in that kind of society without participating in the system. <coughs> Beast! All right, yes, Andrew. I just wonder about how sad Jesus would feel about all the empires that were created in his name. Yeah, thank goodness that's over. <laughs> yeah, right? That's the, the deepest, uh, saddest irony of, of uh, big chunks of the Christian church at times have been the using of Jesus' name to, to play out the role of the beast. Uh, and so the attachment of Jesus' name doesn't make something Jesus-y. Um, it's, it's what way of life are we going to participate in? Which way will we follow? Yeah. So Constantine, when he converts to Christianity in the 4th century, he was the Roman emperor at that time, he decides the whole empire's got to convert to Christianity because he sees a vision of the cross and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, and gets a word, uh, this is his story anyway, in the sign you will conquer. So he paints crosses on all the shields of his army and then they win their battle and he's like, right, Christianity for everybody. Um, <laughs> and there's a pretty deep, sad thing going on there in terms of what that does to a Christian message, which becomes then synonymous with the empire. All right, so we've cheered ourselves up with all of that. Yes. Oh, sorry, Constantine is later. So Constantine is um, a few, uh, 
is 300 years after Jesus. Yeah. Um, so, having reflected on that question, the other thing that Jim po- John then poses to us is, okay, how do we want to live in the world? And I don't think this is a, uh, you will always get it 100% correct, because as Dietrich says, the wrestle is not just with something out there, it's with something in here, right? Something internal. Um, but it's to keep, as a community of people who follow Jesus, I think one of our challenges is to keep asking ourselves the question, what does it mean then to try and resist the empire's way of being in the world, whatever that might be, even if that's an empire within myself? And what would it mean for me to instead follow the way of self-giving love that I see in Jesus? A Jesus who uh, gives up power and offers love instead. And what does that look like for me personally? What does it look like for us communally? And what does that mean for the way we act in society and are at work within society as followers of Jesus to bring about a different kind of reality? Yeah? So that's... um. You know, when I was growing up, all you had to do as a Christian was pray and read your Bible every day and try not to sin too much. Um, this is like, a mu- this is a much different kind of challenge that's put before us, but I think it's one that um, is offered to us as a challenge. And I think, especially for those of us who are from the more privileged side of life, the real confronting challenge in this is, this is a text written by people who are on the underside who are, this is like, if we take the bananas, this is the text written by the slaves picking our bananas, and we are the people eating the bananas. And so I think there is a genuine confrontation that comes to us when we read some of these texts that asks us, what do we do with what we have, and how did we get here? Oh, it's so uncomfortable. Hello, Linda. (laughs) Yeah. It is a, it's, a, it's a personal unfolding journey that then I think communally we experience together as well and we actually talk to one another. Uh, it's a very difficult, I, I, I don't think this is anything anyone really would be expected to try and figure out by themselves and then go out and live this life of resistance um, as much as it is the, the, one of the first places the church starts to practice a different way of being is in the way they treat one another. And that was what set them apart in those first couple of centuries after Jesus was that they um, refused to give in to the status systems of the empire and so they welcomed slaves and women and and all sorts of and and treated people 
profoundly different within the community of faith and said, this is like a little glimpse of what the world could, could be like uh, if we were to start treating at least one another in this kind of way. So that's like a, 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 a place to start as well, I think. Yes, Katerina? was profoundly touched by that video by that Swedish woman who stood up on an air in the aeroplane. I don't know whether you saw that one. It's a 21-year-old Swedish woman who was boarding a plane to fly somewhere and she realized that on the plane was um, someone to be deported to Afghanistan. And she was got so upset that she wouldn't sit down. And she said, I'm not sitting down because this man will get killed when we land. And people, it was so instructive to me because she wasn't prepared for this because she was just going to go on this journey. She got really nervous and blotchy and didn't quite have the words. And people around there saying, look, what are you doing to these people on the plane? And children are upset around you. And the pilot needs to start. And, blah, blah, blah. and she said... Yes, but this man will die, and I can't. I, I will not sit down. And um, and I, I've, yeah, I, I really encourage you to, if you see it somewhere, to look at it because, to me, it was very real that she just made that that choice, and it was huge. And she, um, it was more like a gut feeling and a spirit feeling, and in the end, they did not deport that man and the flight um, they had, had unloaded all the luggage and got the man off and every, and there was a group of people really cross with her and took the phone off and abused her and other people applauded her and you know it was very anyway I carry on but anyway it's a great instructive piece on what it's what it's like to stand up all right Man, this is food for thought. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, teaching this, so I'm an expert at some of this, but for you guys, some stuff to really go away and work on. Um, <laughs> okay, we've got to have dinner shortly. So I just want to mention uh, the word Antichrist before we go. Is that all right? Just because that's the title of today's session, Naming the Antichrist. But I think we've already really talked about the core of what most people are thinking about when they think of that term. Uh, I do want to just mention the four verses in the Bible that do mention this word. Uh, you can go and read them later if you like. Uh, so the writer of John's letters, the first time he mentions the Antichrist, says there are many. Uh, so that kind of stuffs up the whole uh, <laughs> who, who is the Henry Kissinger uh, situation. Um, then he says these, these three things, which seem quite intense again to us. It's like, oh, John's, John's a pretty intense guy. Uh, the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the one who denies that Jesus is from God, and one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. Uh, that is the Antichrist. So, uh, for starters, that's then quite different from uh, what uh, Barry Smith was telling me in 1984. Um, but this is, these are the only places in which that term is used in the Bible. Uh, and again, they might seem like almost exclusionary um, 
ways of framing it. Like, oh, so everyone, who, so we've gone from the Antichrist is a bad guy in the future to the Antichrist is everyone who's not a Christian. <laughs> it's terrible, terrible people. Uh, again, a, just a little brief clip of context for us. John's letters are written in a community where a bunch of people are coming in and saying, Jesus cannot have been from God uh, because uh, God cannot be associated with physical, dirty things. They were influenced by something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism says that physical, earthly reality is evil and bad, and the only truly good thing is the non-physical, spiritual thing. And so they said, Jesus cannot be, have been come in the flesh because flesh is evil. And John says, to call flesh evil is the spirit of the Antichrist. So that's one thing that's going on in this text. Does that make sense? Um, and the other thing that the, some others, so that, that was the Gnostics who were interrupting this community and saying that. And then we also had some, uh, some Jewish people who said, Jesus can't have been the Christ because the Old Testament says that cursed is he who hung on a tree. And Jesus was killed on a cross, therefore he's cursed from God, therefore he cannot have been uh, the Christ. Does that make sense? So there were Jewish people coming into the community and, and, and saying, this Jesus cannot have been the Christ because he was killed by hanging on a tree, and the Old Testament tells us that that means they're cursed. And John says uh, that that also is the spirit of the Antichrist, to say that God cannot enter into our pain and suffering in the story of Jesus in the kind of way that he does is to essentially embrace the spirit of anti-Christ. So there are two things that John's saying here uh, in this community about the spirit of the Antichrist. And he uses that phrase, the spirit of the Antichrist, um, in one of these texts. One, uh, the spirit of the Antichrist is to say that um, physical life and flesh and blood is evil and bad. Um, because we affirm that God himself and Jesus Christ came and inhabited flesh and blood. So that's the story of Christ. And the second is um, the spirit of the Antichrist is, is to deny that God can enter into our suffering and our pain. And so um, that's the Antichrist. Which is a bit different, hey? It's a bit different. Mm-hmm. It's just two ways of saying that someone doesn't believe that Jesus is Christ. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing when you actually look up the word in the Bible instead of reading um, like, or watching Kirk Cameron. Um, those, those are the texts. That's all the texts in the Bible about the Antichrist. People who say that Jesus isn't the Christ. <laughs> um, it's so funny when, when I teach this sometimes at, at, in, in Bible college because um, I have a lot of students who come from churches who, who, who are, who's, have been taught dispensation that all that stuff you know the left behind stuff their whole life and I'll get to the end of you know maybe three or four hours of talking about this in a lecture format going through it in detail saying it's not about this at all, it's actually about this, and that is exactly the question they ask at the end, genuinely. So, who do you really think it is, though? Um, and I'm like, oh, I feel like I just wasted three or four hours of my life. Um, 
But one of the reasons, I guess, that happens is because you've been sold a story over and over and over and over and over again that it ingrains. So when you see a word, you see a thing, you assume, oh, that means all of this. Uh, so what I've tried to do tonight is at least open that up for us and say maybe there's a different conversation we're being invited into here. Is that cool?